It is good to be home. It's good to be with you. Um, as I look out, there's a lot of new faces. We've been gone for a while, and I'm reminded of the words of Bilbo Baggins at his 111st birthday. He intended this as, a, as an insult. I intended it as a compliment. I know less than half of you, half as much as I should like. Um, it's good to be here. And as Seth mentioned, I have the privilege of serving at Asepa Seminary. I've been there for the last nearly nine years. I taught courses for about five years. I was the academic dean, and uh, most recently they've uh, chosen to name me uh, the president of the institution. I remember when I was in seminary, one of the things that uh, I loved to hear was Bill Jones uh, talking about just the things that God had done for CIU while I was there. Typically, it involved millions of dollars that were coming in from donors, and we haven't had millions of dollars, but this year at graduation... I was able to announce to our graduating class and to the folks who were there that the Lord had provided $70,000 for our seminary last year. Part of that was for our, uh, for our property, and part of that was for scholarships, over $40,000 that we were going to be able to give away this year in scholarships, which is a tremendous difference maker for a number of our students, because though our education is extremely affordable, $100 a course, um, maybe $300 a course for a master's level course, um, it's still unaffordable to many who are outside the city and don't have uh, steady work. So the Lord has provided tremendously for us, and we appreciate the prayers of those who support us back in the States, you included. So thank you. Um, this morning, we're going to be looking and considering, uh, looking at and considering 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 54 through 61. So let me read this for you. This is Solomon's uh, de- benediction after his prayer in chapter 8 at the... Uh, Benedict at the uh, after the building of the temple, or the dedication of the temple. This is what the, the the word says. Now, as Solomon finished offering all this prayer and plea to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord, where he had knelt with hands outstretched toward heaven, and he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice, saying, "Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel, according to all that he promised." Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. The Lord our God be with us, as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us, that he may incline our hearts to him, to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his rules, which he commanded our fathers. Let these words of mine, with which I have pleaded before the Lord, be near to the Lord our God day and night. And may he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel, as each day requires, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no other. Let your heart, therefore, be wholly true to the Lord our God, walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments as at this day. We read here that, Solomon finished his prayer, which begins in the same chapter in verse 22. And prior to his prayer, if you were to read the book of uh, 1 Kings, you would find that uh, the temple is built in chapter 6, in chapter 7 it's furnished, and in chapter 8, in the opening portion of the book, the Ark of the Covenant was placed in the temple. Solomon then blesses the Lord and offers up uh, a long prayer that precedes our verses this morning. And at some point during the prayer, he actually kneels, though if you read from, from verse 22 forward, the text never tells us that he knelt. 
It doesn't tell us when, and it doesn't tell us why. And actually, Richard Nelson comments that the reader remembers that the prayer began with him standing in verse 22, and can only conclude that under the weight of his petitions, Solomon had sunk to a kneeling position, an act of submission. Phil Riken actually comments and suggests that perhaps Solomon had wanted to give honor to God by kneeling in his presence. Whatever the reason, we find that Solomon has sunk to his knees and now stands up again before the people in order to bless them with this benediction. Now you need to understand that this is a historic moment for Israel. The Lord has dwelt among his people since the Exodus, but his place has been the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. We read about God's instructions regarding how that tabernacle uh, was to be, uh, excuse me, we read the tabernacle was, uh, I've got ahead of myself. Uh, We read about God's instructions for how to build the tabernacle and all of its furnishings in Exodus 25 through 31. We read about how the tabernacle was then placed at the center of Israel's camp during the desert wanderings in Numbers chapter 2, and actually how all the tribes were arranged around the tabernacle uh, in in Numbers 2. And it reminds us that the tabernacle and the sacrificial system that God established at the Exodus were literally the center of Israel's camp for 40 years. This was the tent that God had designed and gave to Moses to lead the people through the desert. And it had several dwelling places once they arrived in Israel and settled. It was in Shiloh, it was in Gilgal, and it was in Jerusalem. And it was David's desire, if you remember, in 2 Samuel 7, to build God a temple to replace this tent. David's comment is sort of like, how could God live in a tent when I live in a house of cedar? And God responds in the same chapter in 2 Samuel 7 and says that David wouldn't build him a temple. Instead, God would build a house for David. And this exchange is the heart of what we call the Davidic covenant. And God says two things to David in this covenant. First, he says that in the 400 plus years that he dwelled in the tabernacle, he never asked for a house of cedar. These are God's words in 2 Samuel 7, 6 and 7. I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? And secondly, God tells David that his son, Solomon, will build a temple for him, not David. So after 400 years, more than 400 years, the symbol of God's presence with Israel is going to change from a tent, a movable structure, to something permanent, a temple. And so this gives us the basic context for our passage. However, what we really want to consider this morning is what follows, which is this benediction that Solomon gives to the people of Israel after the dedication of the temple. And if we were to reduce what follows into a single idea, I think we could do it this way. The faithfulness of God to us, his presence with us, and his sustaining grace in us should produce obedience that proclaims his saving grace to the nations. Let me repeat that. 
the faithfulness of God to us, his presence with us, and his sustaining grace in us should produce obedience that proclaims his saving grace to the nations. Let's consider God's faithfulness first, because that's what Solomon considers first in verse 56. Now, I don't know about you, uh, but I have been reminded on different occasions by my children when I've promised them something, typically when I forget, uh, with the words, but you said, or but you promised, and more often than not, my response is, that's not what I said, or that's not what I meant. We're human. Uh, We forget. Often we don't communicate clearly, and there can be confusion uh, with what we intend and what we're promising, but that is not like that's not God. God is not like us. Instead, he wants to be reminded of his promises because he has never made a rash promise. He has never said anything that he will not fulfill completely. He will keep all of the good word that he has given, and it is good for us as his people to be reminded often of his faithfulness. And that is what Solomon does here. He reminds the people of Israel of God's previous faithfulness in one very specific area, the giving of rest. And this concept of rest is a very important concept and very important theme in biblical history. It shows up first in Genesis with the creation and the rest that God took when he was done creating. And it runs through the Old Testament in connection with the promised land. God will give the land and he will give rest, rest from enemies uh, primarily. It's promised, uh, so it was associated with settling uh, rest and peace, or rest from war and peace, and it's connected with the idea of peace and prosperity. And Solomon seems to be alluding to several passages with his words here, Passages that come from the Pentateuch, Deuteronomy 12, uh, specifically where God promises rest to Israel when they get into the promised land. And additionally, as we look at Solomon's benediction, we see that he's picking up other biblical material, uh, again, mostly stuff that comes from the Pentateuch in which, uh, or the early books, uh, in which these themes occur. Joshua actually, or the book of Joshua, makes some comments that are very similar to what Uh, Solomon says here uh, regarding Israel and their settlement in the promised land. In fact, Joshua 21.45 says, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. There are these moments in Israel's history where they stop and they reflect and they say everything that God has promised has come true. That's a powerful statement. Joshua, or the book of Joshua does it. Solomon's doing it here. He picks up that theme in this passage, indicating that the construction of the temple is the fulfillment of God's promise, specifically God's promise of rest. He has given the land, and he has provided rest. And if you know your biblical history, then you know that under Solomon, Israel reached its zenith. The, it's, its biggest, it was its biggest and its most prosperous under Solomon, and there was the most peace under Solomon. And so this is true. However, it is still a partial fulfillment because the promise of land and rest 
are do not only belong to Israel, they are in fact also what we would call eschatological promises. That is, they're promises that we hold to today that will be fulfilled in the future with the second coming of Christ. And so we can say with confidence, as Solomon did, that not one word has failed of all good, God's good promise, even though in some senses we, wait, uh, we still wait for the rest and the land that is to come. Uh, Phil Riken writes, uh, We wait in faith for the land that God has promised to us, the land of heaven. There, there we will find rest from all our weariness, victory over all our sin, deliverance on the other side of death, and a home where we can worship God forever. God is faithful. And that is what Solomon is pointing out to Israel as the first point in his benediction. The second aspect that Solomon mentions to the people is God's presence. We see this in verses 57 and 58. As you know, and we've sort of touched on this, the presence of God was continually with Israel as he led them through the desert for 40 years. It was visible. It was indicated by the tabernacle as well as the pillars of cloud and fire. That uh, it, was, it was God's presence in the forms of the pillar and the fire, of the cloud and the fire, that told Israel when and where to go and when to stop and make camp. Again, Solomon's words reflect an understanding of Israel's history and God's presence with them. He repeats ideas that are found in the Pentateuch as he did with this idea of God's faithfulness. Specifically, here we can go to Deuteronomy 31, verse 6 where Moses says, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. We can see that one of God's promises to his people was his presence with them. Presence is it's a strangely comforting thing. And I'm sure if you're like me, then you can remember being as a child that often we felt safer when our parents were around. There's just something about their presence that brings comfort. A, a while back, we decided that our kids were old enough to stay home by themselves for us to go about a quarter mile down the street to buy some stuff at the corner store. Our kids are 11 and 9. We live behind a gate. We have a guard. Um, nothing was going to happen. We know the neighbors. And so we, we asked them, we said, do you want to... You want to try and be home by yourself when we spend five or ten minutes going down to the store? And they were excited. They, yeah, we want to go. What we came back to was every door locked and every light on. So they were in, in some room together, huddled, scared. Your parents' presence provides comfort and a sense of safety. It's the same thing. The same was true of Israel. The presence of God made them feel safe and made them feel secure. And this was because it was God who had given them rest and safety from their enemies. It was God who won their battles for them. And he often did it in ways that were absolutely uh, and clearly miraculous. So that no one could say that Israel had won that battle, but that it had been God who did it for them. They were so confident in God, and actually mistook at one point their confidence in God for what Rick Phillips says was a confidence in God's furniture, that they took the ark into battle and lost it, if you remember, 
because they believed that it was the ark that gave them the power to win the battles and not God, not the presence of God that the ark represented. And the same promise of God's presence is true today for us as believers. And there are, there are several, many passages in the New Testament that speak to the fact that God, God promises His presence with us. But uh, one very well-known passage is Matthew 28, 20, the end of the Great Commission, in which Christ says to His disciples, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The promise of Christ, of His presence. He promises the Spirit to the disciples. If you go to uh, Hebrews chapter 13, we have uh, other, other instances of the promises of, of God's presence for His people. But God's presence with us has a purpose. He's not simply with us to make us feel safe and feel good and feel secure. It has a purpose, and it's stated pretty clearly in verse uh, 58, and I'm going to go back and read that specifically. It says that he may incline our hearts to him to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his rules which he commanded our fathers. So the purpose of God's presence is that he may incline our hearts toward him to produce obedience. His presence should produce obedience. It's not simply to make us feel safe. It's not simply uh, to make us feel secure, but to produce obedience in us. And if you remember, the presence of God in Israel's midst was no light thing. You go back to Mount Sinai, where they first met God upon leaving uh, Egypt, and there was lightning, and there was thunder, and the people trembled, and they were not to touch the mountain or they would die. The presence of God is no light thing. And when God, when God ordered the tabernacle to be built and he laid out the arrangement of the tribes, as I mentioned in Numbers 2, around that tabernacle, you realize that he put the Levites at the center between the people and the tabernacle. And the reason he did that was so that people who weren't supposed to come into the tabernacle wouldn't come into the tabernacle and die. The presence of God among his people is a serious thing uh, God is not Olaf, who likes warm hugs. I'm sure he does like warm hugs, but there's more to the presence of God than warm fuzzies. Now, even though God's presence inspires fear and awe, it does simultaneously bring comfort. And part of the reason for that is because we understand how big God is. The fact that he's dangerous, the fact that he can win all of the battles that he goes into, also gives us confidence that he can protect us. And that is because, the reason it can bring us comfort is because we've been reconciled to him through Christ. Those who must fear God are those, are his enemies. Again, uh, Riken says that the sad truth is that because of sin, our hearts are not inclined to walk in God's ways, to say nothing of keeping his commands. In the words of Matthew Henry, our hearts are naturally averse to our duty and apt to decline from God. Therefore, we need a powerful work of God's Spirit to turn our hearts back in His direction. As Henry also said, it is His grace that inclines them, grace that must be obtained by prayer. So we pray for the sanctifying Spirit to make our hearts what God wants. Only then will we walk in God's ways and keep God's commandments. 
So through his presence, God produces obedience in us. This is the sanctifying work of his spirit in our lives. God is not only faithful, and God is not only present with us. He sustains us from day to day. In fact, all of us are here this morning because God has given us life, and this is true for every living creature, whether we want to acknowledge it or not. God sustains his creation, every aspect of his creation. But Solomon is not speaking here about the common grace of God sustaining all that he has created. He's talking about special grace maintaining the cause of his servant and his people as each day requires. But what is the cause that Solomon is referring to here? The cause is obedience. As we think back over biblical history prior to this moment, we see that uh, obedience to God has always been the cause of his people, though very often his people have not always maintained that cause themselves. Go back to the garden. Adam and Eve were to obey God in the garden. They failed. Noah was to obey God in building an ark. He succeeded. He failed in some other things. Abraham was to obey God in leaving behind, behind all he had to follow God. And that was uh, given the explicit promise of being a blessing to the families of all the earth. So we have this interesting promise that's given uh, to Abraham. Moses and Israel were to obey God by leaving Egypt and entering Canaan, which they did, but you don't have to read very far in Numbers before you realize that Israel was just sort of a pain in the neck and was constantly disobedient to God. And if we look at these cases individually, we see, as I mentioned, both successes and failures. But overall, we see the hand of God maintaining the cause of his people to be a blessing to the families of all the earth, to all the families of the earth, excuse me. And as we consider Israel's failures and disappointments, we see that God carried her, we see that God maintained her, and we see that God sustained her by his grace daily. Ralph Davis puts it wonderfully in his commentary, saying that the last phrase, this idea of daily sustaining, uh, reads literally a matter of, day, of a day in its day. It's the very same phrase used in Exodus 16:4, where God was to gather the manna, a day, uh, sorry, where Israel was to gather the manna. A day's portion every day is what the NASB says, whereas the NIV has it enough for that day. So there is the covenant scheme and the ultimate view of all peoples acknowledging Yahweh. And yet there is also the regular, mundane, bump-along, day-to-day need that Solomon and Israel have to be supported by a God who keeps the words of Solomon's prayer under his constant eye. Solomon is asking that God would sustain his people in their everyday obedience to his word. And the reason for this is given explicitly in verse 60. And it is the theme of your missions conference this year. The reason that Solomon wants God to sustain his people in their everyday obedience is so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God. There is no other. 
There is no other. In other words, the reason for which God demonstrates his faithfulness, gives his presence, and sustains his people is to provide a witness to the world. Sound familiar? The seed of what we call missions today is found as far back as Abraham. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. It's found in the Exodus, or at least post-Exodus, in Deuteronomy 4, and it's expressed in this passage by Solomon. And this final, the final verse of the passage speaks to the response that the people should have to this message. Uh, it says, Let your heart therefore be wholly true to the Lord our God, walking in his statutes and keeping his commandments as at this day. God is faithful. God is present. God sustains. Therefore, continue to obey God as you do today. Solomon reminds the people as he closes that the only res proper response to God is obedience. To the faithfulness of God to us, his presence in us, and his, and his, uh, his, sorry, his presence with us and his sustaining grace in us should produce obedience that proclaims his saving grace to the nations. So how does this text apply to us today? Obedience, I think, well, I know, can be boiled down to loving God and loving our neighbor. That's essentially what Jesus said when he answered the question, what is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, uh, and, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. I think we could actually boil it down further and say that you can't say that you love God if you don't love your neighbor. Not, it's not compatible. Your love of God is expressed through your love of neighbor. So an obedience that proclaims the saving grace of Christ to the nations is an obedience that is marked by our love for God and demonstrated by our love for others. You guys do a lot of good things as a church. Locally, I know you've got the truck stop ministry, you've got the Renew Clinic, you've got the Choices Resource Center, you send short-term mission trips. Uh, I received my call to missions on a short-term mission trip in Jamaica uh, a number of years ago with this church. You have long-term missionaries that you support. We're also one of those uh, beneficiaries. But let me suggest to you that sometimes it's easier to demonstrate love to those who are far off or those you don't have to interact with on a regular basis than to those who are close, who see us uh, day in and day out. And yet that's what God's called us to. And my point with that is this. I've been kind of going around in my head about how to illustrate this. But in asking God to sustain the obedience of his people day by day for a watching world, there's a sense in which what Solomon is asking is that God would help them to love the people near them. If we all loved our neighbor, then foreign missions would sort of take care of itself. Missions in general would sort of take care of itself. That's the way God designed it. We don't love our neighbors well. In fact, our neighbors are often the hardest people to love, specifically because we see their faults. And I, I think it's worth saying that 
all of us struggle with that. It didn't, that didn't, our reality didn't change when we moved to Costa Rica. It's not like they're, those are easier people to love. I have days where I just shake my head. I've watched my wife be hurt. Those are the people that we have to love, the ones who live next to us, across from us. The ones who we have to forgive. And that, friends, is the hardest thing that any of us have to do. To live out our love, our obedience, or inobedience um, for others in the context of our own everyday. That's what God is calling us to do. Whether it's here, whether it's abroad, it doesn't matter. God is asking you to love others in the context of your own everyday.